Welcome to a new episode of Shaping Sustainable Supply Chains, a podcast where we look at supply chains worldwide and provide evidence-based solutions on how to make them more sustainable. I'm Nicholas Martin. Thank you for listening. In the last two episodes, we looked at models and policy frameworks for supply chains. Going forward, we will dive into different supply chains in different regions. Today, we look at food supply chains in Africa. Food plays, like everywhere else on this planet, a big role on the African continent, partly because it's still scarce in many places and hunger is still the biggest health risk in Africa, but also because the middle class is growing rapidly and people are eating more and more diversified. So it's not only yams, cassava or mangoes, but also the demand for processed food products is growing. My guest today is Dr. Savida Onipede Liverpool-Tassier from the Michigan State University in the U.S., There she is an associate professor at the Department of Agricultural, Food and Resource Economics and an expert on development policies. Thank you for joining us today, Savida. Thanks, Nicholas. It's great to be here. You told me in our conversation earlier that your research reveals five common misconceptions when it comes to food supply chains in Africa. You have analyzed the food supply chains in several countries and you say development thinkers and planners need to rethink much of the conventional wisdom. Before we go into detail, Savida, why is this topic of food supply chains actually so important to you? I mean, when you think about food supply chains, um, as you mentioned, they are critical because they are the mechanism through which food is produced and distributed to millions of people, to everyone, basically. And if you think about them in sub-Saharan Africa, where my research is focused, then the transformation of food systems in terms of consumption patterns has led to a supply response along these food supply chains, which have significant implications for the availability, affordability, and quality of food, but is also a major source of employment in terms of all the nodes along the food supply chain um, for, for millions and, or billions of people. What do you mean when you talk about food supply chains? Can you give us a concrete example, maybe with a real product? So first of all, when I say food system, I'm thinking of multiple interconnected food supply chains, right? And then if I think of a particular food supply chain, I'm thinking of vertical and then lateral supply chains. So let me give an example. If we think about the poultry value chain, for example, you have upstream of the food supply chain, the farmers, the poultry farmers, and then we have what we call the midstream, right? Which is those who are processing the poultry products. And then you have the downstream, which are those who are engaged in um, the, the, the sale of the product and the consumption of the product. Um, and then you have the lateral supply chains, which are all the supply chains, things like labor, logistics, that feed into each node of the vertical supply chain. And if we look at the African continent now, um, you say there is major misconceptions on several things. First of all, you're talking about the role of food imports. You even mentioned that these misconceptions are so deeply rooted that even some of your students from, from Africa believe them. What is it all about? <laughs> okay, so thank you for that question, Nicholas. Um, so indeed, there is a widely held belief 
that imports are central to national food security across Africa. And so the literature often notes that Africa is a net food importer and that Africa's food sector development has been held back by large food imports. And this view is, you know, really quite widely held. And yes, you are right that um, that I've asked the question, you know, what share of total food consumed in sub-Saharan Africa, or sometimes I ask about a specific African country, um, is imported. And I've asked this question in various avenues, including my graduate development econ class at MSU. And people generally provide figures consistent with this misconception, 40, 50, 60%. But now, just a quick reality check, right? So yes, many African countries import significant amounts of particular commodities, but actually imports are a minor share of total food consumption and domestic value chains are by far the dominant source of food on the continent. So for example, FAO stats data actually shows that the import share of total food consumption, this is in tonnage terms, is actually very low across Africa. It is less than 5% for Malawi and Tanzania, and it's about 6% in Uganda. For Ethiopia and Nigeria, the share of imports is just over 7%. And if you look at the whole of Sub-Saharan Africa, the import share of food is 13%. So quite different than what many people think. You're also saying that the role of rural households is sometimes misanalyzed in current scientific research. When we talk about rural farming in Africa, there is this image of families with a little plot of land cultivating a range of products in very small quantities to meet the direct needs of their families. But according to your studies, this view is outdated, right? Um, yes, indeed. This is often the case. So another misconception um, that we have found is this idea that you know, rural households in Africa purchase little food. And this image actually has its roots in, in the reality of, you know, maybe 20 to 30 years ago, wow. when rural households were mostly subsistence farmers. However, things have changed. And now across rural areas of Africa, the majority of food is actually purchased. In Nigeria, for example, it is well over 70%. And then you have a third related myth, which is this idea that small farmers are still traditional and they're poorly integrated into markets. So this is the idea that um, African farmers overwhelmingly use only traditional technologies, they have very low yields, and they sell little to the markets, still this idea of subsistence. But in reality, rural to urban food value chains have grown extremely rapidly over the last 20 to 25 years, and many African farmers are purchasing inputs. So for example, in our work on the poultry and maize value chain in Nigeria, we found that even among sp small poultry farmers, who have maybe 50 to 100 birds, about 65% of them are using antibiotics. And similarly, only about 10% of them practice free range, and about 90% are making some sort of investment in feed. The majority of them are actually purchasing already-made feed, whilst others are purchasing the ingredients to make their own feed. In addition, we have um, nationally representative data from Nigeria, which shows that um, about 60% of the rice farms And 70% of the maize farms in Nigeria's main rice and maize producing regions actually are using like inorganic fertilizer. So they're very engaged in the markets, these um, rural farmers. You already talked about the producers like farmers, which you set upstream and the consumers, 
which you named or which you categorized downstream. But you also found out that we should look more at the middleman, the hidden middle, as you say, the midstream. What is this hidden middle and why is it important for development? When we talk about the midstream, we're referring to those economic agents along food supply chains who are involved in like the processing and distribution of food, such as wholesalers, food processing companies, and then those involved in like third-party logistics, such as transportation and storage. Okay? So now to your question. Yes, we have actually observed uh, another myth, which is this idea that food value chains have a missing middle with either few or stagnant small and medium-scale enterprises in the midstream of this food um, supply chains as well as input supply chains. And this term, missing middle, is frequently used in policy debates, right, to imply that there are limited numbers of these actors or severe lack of capacity among these SMEs, which are involved in processing and distribution of foods and inputs. But in contrast, we find that there is rapid and dynamic activity in the midstream. So one of our recent studies, for example, looking at the maize and feed and um, chicken value chains in Nigeria, revealed thousands of commercial poultry farms. It also revealed a thousand kilometer north to south maize supply chain because maize is produced mostly in the north, and then it goes all over Nigeria. We found some 10 to 15,000 urban maize traders and thousands of rural maize aggregators all engaged in procuring and trading of maize and maize-based products. All of these actors, we found, depend heavily on thousands of third-party logistics SMEs, also in trucking and warehousing. So there's this rapid buzz of activities in the midstream that is often ignored in policy debates, even also in research sometimes. Why is it actually that these misconceptions that you already showed, like the centrality of imports, the role of rural households, and also the role of the middlemen, why do these misconceptions still persist? Well, I mean, I think there are probably several reasons. And I think one of the reasons is the fact that um, a lot of them are held on views that may have been accurate in the past. You know, 20, 30 years ago, you know, things were, were, were maybe a little different. And so in the last 20 to 30 years, a lot of things have changed. And one needs to be kind of, you know, we need to keep going to the field, collecting the data, looking at the data and understanding how things are changing. Things are always changing. And I think that the idea of the subsistence farmer is, is you know, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years ago, this was the reality. But things have changed and it's not the case. If you look at urbanization rates, right, in the 1970s, Nigeria's urbanization rate was was much less, like 25, 30%. And now you're talking about a 50, you know, it's over 50% now um, urban. So all of this is going to mean changes in the consumption patterns. Is, and if you have changes in consumption patterns, then you're going to need to have a change in the supply chain configuration to be able to respond to these changing consumption patterns. So I think that one of the um, reasons why we might have some of these misconceptions is because we haven't updated um, kind of, um, the, you know, updated our knowledge, you know, base in terms of uh, looking at the current data. And we still have a lot of misconceptions because they're based on, on, the, on the previous previous reality that hasn't been updated. To sum it up a little bit, um, what I get from, from, from what you're saying is that actually 
science should look more at also informal patterns that have been established and support those informal patterns actually to improve livelihoods, output and the farmer's well-being. Is that right? Exactly. So basically, if we think about some of the recommendations that are coming out of our work is that, yes, these small and medium scale enterprises in food supply chains, they are the lifeblood of food supply chains. We all depend on these um, uh, on these food supply chains. And these small and medium scale enterprises really should be considered as allies of the government and donors. They shouldn't be considered as competitors or as missing. They are there and they are very dynamic. And when we are thinking even about provision of key rural services to support smallholder farmers, we need to recognize that they exist. And rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, um, I think that governments and donors should really focus on trying to facilitate the successful operation of these small and medium scale enterprises through investments in like hard um, infrastructure such as uh, roads and power, but also through policies and regulations that can reduce the transactions costs for the startup and operation of these small and medium scale enterprises. Because these small and uh, medium scale enterprises can really support both the availability and affordability of, of, of nutritious food, but they can also engage and make the food system transformation more inclusive, inclusive of these smallholder farmers and also um, um, both as sources of their products as well as um, you know, uh, employment opportunities for, for them. And so I think that the governments and donors need to interact more with this informal sector. And I do think that um, there is some role for improvement of these small and medium scale enterprises. You rightly alluded to the fact that many of them are, many of this is informal. That is the reality. But these um, small and medium scale enterprises are already very well connected to small farmers and also to the, the ecosystem. And so they could be used to make the food system transformation happening in Africa much more inclusive. When I say inclusive, I mean including women, youth, and other disadvantaged groups. And I also think that, you know, particularly because of the focus of your podcast, that they could also be um, allies to help promote smallholder adoption of agricultural practices that are environmentally friendly. Savita, let me ask you one thing. You, you always talk about SMEs, small and medium enterprises. In the, in the African context, can you give us some images? What are these SMEs actually? Who are they? Oh, okay. So, so that's great. And actually, because you've asked for this, I will actually even add another dimension, which is micro. So you have micro, small, and medium scale enterprises. These are small enterprises. They could be a one person, um, uh, you know, activity, somebody who's engaged in trading, right? So they may be trading fruits and vegetables. They could be a small firm that has... They could be at a wet market somewhere. In exactly. Trading in food products. And when we think about the vertical food supply chains, they could be trading in eggs. They could be trading in poultry products. They could be engaged in packaging of some of these um, food products. So maybe they have vegetables that they package and put them in little bags to make them re ready, kind of ready for you to cook. So you could imagine that they have deshelled your peas. They have chopped off your carrots. And this might not be a very fancy a branded package but it could be unbranded. You could also be um, people who are engaged in um, the, the distribution of the lateral services. So they are selling the packages that you will put the processed food into, right? That material. They could be those who are selling um, charcoal or, you know, or string or ropes and other things that you can use in the packaging of, of food and food products. So there's so many um, small and medium scale enterprises directly involved in production and processing of food or in the provision of these lateral services 
that feed into the vertical food supply chain. And would you say, like, until now, due to many misconceptions about the role of middleman, the role of the rural households as well, um, donors and also governments actually focused too little on the informal part and focused too much on bigger companies, imports, things like that? Yes, indeed. I mean, I think that one of the, the, the challenges that we face is that not enough attention has been paid to how to ensure that these small and medium-scale enterprises are existing and actually their um, operations are even more effective. And we saw that a lot in the, the COVID-19, both in terms of the focus of the policies and even the kinds of policies that were used um, and the way they were implemented. For example, like the lockdown policies. Lockdown policies in some countries, for example, in Nigeria, led to severe hindering of the operation of these, um, of these small and medium-scale enterprises and these wet markets. So in some of the Nigerian states, for example, the wet markets were closed and they were only opened on you know, particular days of the week, maybe two days a week. And so what that meant was that on those days of the week, you had a lot of people congested at these um, markets, of course, potentially allowing for further um, spread of the COVID-19. But then actually, because of the severe restriction of the operation, people couldn't have access to healthy, nutritious food easily. And then a lot of the employment opportunities, so a lot of the income earning capacity of these um, small and medium scale enterprises was severely hampered, such that we found a lot of issues of food security arising from the restrictions of these operations directly on income earning, as well as on the availability of, of food. So definitely, I think that we need much more recognition of the important role of the food supply chains and these small and medium-scale enterprises along these food supply chains when designing policies generally and specifically when, or particularly when you have shocks such as the COVID-19. Yeah, you just mentioned the pandemic. Like many African countries closed borders, they restricted the movements of goods and people. And even if we look at data, uh, hunger in Africa has increased due to the pandemic. So would you say that this data actually supports your thesis? and says that the reaction was a mistake, that this sharp reaction was a mistake? So I think that um, definitely there should have been um, a little bit more, more careful consideration of the roles of food supply chains and logistics when designing these, um, these policies. But I will actually want to go back to myth one that I mentioned about the critical role of domestic supply chains. So one of the things that we argue is the fact that the myth about the centrality of imports to food security actually led a lot of the debate during COVID, particularly earlier on, to be focused on the trade effects of COVID and deflected attention from the domestic food supply chains. So for example, in Nigeria, even in the early days of the COVID-19, there were actually efforts made to keep the ports in Nigeria operational. So port cargo handling and port storage were exempted from the lockdowns and allowed to remain open with efforts made to ensure or at least promote social distancing, use of masks and sanitizers. However, there was limited attention paid to how to keep the domestic supply chains operational and safe. And there were actually several policies that severely restricted the operation of these domestic supply chains. And this included like restrictions on the movement of labor and other important non-food items, which were actually critical for food production and distribution. 
So for many Nigerian states, interstate passage travel was banned, which significantly affected the movement of farm labor and non-farm informal sector workers, and thus hurt incomes and food security directly, but then also had a significant and negative effect on food production, right? So this is uh, another dimension, which is that even the way the, the policies were designed, the focus of the policies and their implementation led to a lot of hindrances or disruptions to the domestic food supply chain, which I think had a severe effect on food security because of its impact on income earning and availability of food. To sum it up, once again, you're saying development policy and also local uh, governments have long underestimated that local food production can be a, a huge driver for growth and job creation. But what we haven't talked about is the quality of those jobs and food supply chains. Is there something that you can say from your research already about the, the quality of the jobs? Um, yes. So actually, I think that there is definitely room for um, for improving on the the quality of the jobs or the the ability for these jobs to translate into non-poor livelihood status for a lot of the households engaged in in some of these um, activities. But I would say that already we are seeing that the rapid expansion of the food supply chains is creating both on-farm and off-farm opportunities for smallholder farms. And like I mentioned earlier, the transformation of food systems, changing consumption patterns is creating opportunities for the supply chain to respond in providing these um, this food. And like you mentioned earlier, not only are we seeing increased consumption of processed foods, but we're also seeing diversified diets, increased consumption of animal protein. So poultry value chain, fish value chains, um, vegetables and dairy. Um, so all of these are increased opportunities. And so I think that where we increase the um, the productivity of those who are engaged in these value chains, where we increase their scale of operation, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for increasing the earning from those value chains and the ability for them to also employ more people and employ at better um, at better jobs. So I think that ensuring that these um, small and medium scale enterprises are supported to be much more effective, I think is important. And like I mentioned, um, when we did our um, scoping review, we did find that there are significant, there is significant opportunity or say significant room for improving the efficiency of these small and medium scale enterprises. And so even if we want to improve the quality of the jobs for those who they hire, as well as the quality of the, um, the, the impact that they have on the smallholder farmers, I think we need to also increase their, um, their efficiency of their operation. There is a big discussion going on in Europe about sustainability. We talked now about the social dimensions of food supply chains already. And we also touched the ecological dimensions when you said like fertilizers or antibiotics. Um, what do you think? Should, should African farmers care more about the ecological footprint of their food? Or is this rather a first world debate? Um, so I think that, you know, issues about um, environmentally safe practices and um, the impacts of agriculture on um, on the environment as well as implications for climate change are global issues. Um, and I do think that um, actually, if you look at, you know, the experience of many smallholders in developing countries in 
or across sub-Saharan Africa, you will see that they are actually even more adversely affected by some of the impacts of climate change, right? And, you know, we do see already that many of these smallholder farmers are adapting um, in the best way that they can. And so I think that there's definitely a role for efforts that can support their adaptation processes to be a bit more transformative. So I think that there is definitely room for conversations about how the practices that they engage in can be more environmentally friendly or climate smart, both as a mechanism for them to be more resilient, um, as well as to um, you know, contribute to any um, potential ways of reducing the impacts of their activities on the environment. And that's why I mentioned also that I think that these small and medium scale enterprises in the midstream um, can be important allies of the donors and also of the governments as they try to promote these sorts of considerations and practices, because these platforms are already engaging with the farmers. They're already training them on a lot of the practices that they're engaging in to increase the productivity of these farmers, as well as the quality of what they're producing for these economic agents in the midstream or the downstream. And so I think that they could be important allies also for providing information in terms of training, as well as maybe incentives for the adoption of some of these environmentally beneficial practices. Thank you so much for your insights on food supply chains in Africa. That was our episode of today with Dr. Savida Onipede, Liverpool Tassie, development expert and associate professor at Michigan State University. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Nicholas. This podcast is brought to you by the research network Sustainable Global Supply Chains, which brings together some 70 leading researchers from around the globe. In the next episode, we will have a look in the mining sector and ask if new technology is a chance to clean up the sector's bad environmental and social balance. I'm Nicholas Martin. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned and stay safe.